Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, my name is Nathan Hill, and my new novel is called Wellness. If you've listened to Marginalia for a while, you'll remember our conversation with Nathan Hill for his debut novel, The Knicks. In a review for NPR, Jason Sheehan predicted this about Hill, he's gonna be famous. This is just the start. Now Nathan Hill has penned a sophomore novel titled Wellness, which follows Jack and Elizabeth from their early pre-internet meeting through years into their marriage, as the central tension of the novel seems to be the friction between stability and change, in marriage, in a neighborhood, even in oneself. I recently spoke with Nathan Hill about this and so much more. From KMUW Studios, part of the NPR Podcast Network, this is Marginalia. Can you give our listeners a description of wellness, the novel? <laughs> sure. Wellness uh, begins in the early 1990s with my two main characters, Jack and Elizabeth, who are teenage dreamers who have uh, fled their dysfunctional families and come all the way to Chicago. And uh, they kind of meet each other in the underground music scene in Wicker Park and immediately fall in love. It's a, a sort of Romeo and Juliet, lightning bolt, love at first sight kind of moment that's going to sort of come to define their relationship uh, forever. And then we we fast forward. The book fast forwards 20 years and life has happened. They're parents now. They have been married for a long time. They're trying to buy their forever home and they feel a little lonely. They feel very overwhelmed. And they look back at those hopeless romantics they used to be and they sort of wonder how could those people have been us and then after that, various, you know, dramas and hijinks play out as the book kind of bounces back and forth between their present drama and uh, all the things that sort of led them to this place. So a central tension in the novel seems to be, you know, the friction between stability and change in a marriage, in a neighborhood, even in oneself. So why might the novel keep coming back to this idea? Is it related to the different ideas in the story about what constitutes wellness? I was interested in how something changes incrementally over time in small ways, bit by bit, but then you kind of look back over all of those changes and 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 something has radically transformed. Uh, one of the one of the questions that the book asks in various ways is how much can something change before it's no longer fundamentally itself? And uh, I think this can be true in a person. I think this can be true in a marriage, in a neighborhood, in a country. You know, I, I remember, you know, people that I went to high school with who were absolutely straight edge and wouldn't touch a drop of alcohol who now go to, I don't know, like ayahuasca retreats. Uh, I also know people I met in college who are, you know, hippies who are now corporate lawyers. You know, it's amazing how much someone can change over a lifetime. And I was sort of interested in investigating that and in looking at uh, how... Um, <laughs> How, how things change and yet how we, in our minds, tell a story that makes it all make sense. And, and I was interested in that story, in the, in the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. You know, Elizabeth looks for a scientific explanation for everything. Placebos, the marshmallow experiment, the U-shaped curve of happiness. Meanwhile, Jack is the romantic, the more sensitive one. Talk to me about their partnership and how it's evolved. Mm, yeah, Jack is, <laughs> both these characters are 
different versions of me in different situations in different contexts. You know, Jack is is me when I'm feeling insecure and maybe I, I get a little needy or clingy. Uh, and uh, Elizabeth is me when I'm feeling a little overwhelmed and I, I kind of need to be by myself for a while. And they have created certain patterns in their marriage that at first attracted them to each other and now not not as much. <laughs> so, yeah, I... Uh, and they're both dealing with, I mean, you mentioned uh, that Elizabeth is very scientifically minded, and that's true, but they're both dealing with with a problem of, uh, I guess, information, you know, I'm obviously in kind of, you know, this day and age of uh, of misinformation, disinformation, this has been on my mind, but it struck me that it's possible to be led astray by misinformation, but it's also possible to be led astray by information that's true. You know, Jack is a victim of misinformation and that he's trusting fitness bros online about how to work out and they don't know what they're talking about. But Elizabeth is a victim of what you might call information overload. She's reading all the studies about how to be a very good parent and reading all the studies about child development. And they're all incrementally true, but when taken together, it's a bit overwhelming for her. And we have all this information, but if we can't look at it without context, if we can't look at it kind of holistically with some wisdom, then we're lost. And you kind of see that every time a new, you know, diet study comes out, you know, some tiny study somewhere with 30 participants gets some interesting result and suddenly everybody in the country is eating like seven Brazil nuts every day or something <laughs> like that, you know? So it's kind of like that. It's a it's the rush to try to, you know, use any result from any study somewhere in order to ensure to ourselves that we're living correctly, that we're doing it right, that we're going to be okay. And maybe it's it's a, a bit of a misplaced impulse. I remember the seven Brazil nut diet, except I thought it was six. So, you know, continuing <laughs> with Elizabeth, I'm, I was also fascinated with her research on placebos. What was it about placebos and the placebo effect that captured your interest? Well, placebo is... Strictly speaking, a placebo is a measurable physiological response to symbolic cues. Uh, it's the body's response to finding meaning. People can have placebo responses to all sorts of things. And people have gotten real rashes from fake poison ivy. You know, their real headaches are cured by inert sugar pills. You know, it's it's kind of incredible. And this is a book about how our worlds are built by the stories that we believe in. And placebo, the placebo response is basically believing in a story. It's finding meaning. And and a lot of researchers prefer to call it the meaning effect rather than the placebo effect. And it's it's a term that I prefer as well. And, and so I, I thought like it belonged in the book. Uh, the book is investigating what happens when we believe in certain stories about ourselves, about our partners, about our neighborhoods, about our, our country, our world. And then what happens as uh, those stories calcify and turn into error. And, and, and since placebo is all about believing in stories, I thought, well, it's a natural fit for this kind of a book. There is a really compelling nonlinearity to the structure of the novel where we learn more about Jack and Elizabeth, not only through flashbacks, but sometimes through the way those flashbacks ask us to reevaluate other scenes in the story. When mm -hmm. you were thinking about how to structure this story, were you wanting to destabilize the narrative in a way that parallels the search for stability that the characters in the novel undergo? Or what was the thought process for putting the story together? That was a real headache producer. I, I, I had this idea at the very beginning that I wanted to tell a story about a couple, but that it would have three 
main characters, a husband, a wife, and time. I wanted time to you, for the reader to really feel the passage of time. And I wanted the reader to have the experience that we have in real life, which is the closest people in our lives. We get to know them both forwards and backwards at the same time. You know, we get to know them forwards by spending our days with them. Uh, but then we get to know them backwards by you know, hearing old stories, maybe we meet their parents, maybe we see where they grew up, uh, and we kind of understand who they were before we met them. And in those two phenomena, we kind of create a synthesis of understanding of who this person is. And of course, the more we get to know them, the more they trust us with their secrets. And so I wanted the experience of this book to feel like that, that you're getting to know these characters forwards and backwards at the same time. And you're kind of peeling back the onion layers on them bit by bit as you get to be more intimate with them. That sounds really nice, but in practice, it was really, really difficult <laughs> to do, uh, to keep going back in time. But I didn't want it to feel like a flashback. I wanted it to feel like it was pushing the present narrative forward, even though we were 20 years in the past. And I don't know how many times I whined to my wife in the kitchen about how I should just tell the story chronologically and linearly and how this was really difficult. But ultimately, after a lot of all I can tell you is just a lot of trial and error and just kind of moving things around. And I've got a big cork board in my office where I have note cards and I covered the entire thing with various iterations of the story until finally something seemed to work and it seemed to kind of click in for me. Um, and, and it was just a matter of messing up enough times that I finally got it. I hear sugar pills are really good for those types of headaches. So <laughs> Sugar anything is really good. <laughs> this novel, part of this novel is set in the Kansas Prairie Land, and that's where Jack's origin story is. You know, he grew up in the Flint Hills. And, and some of our listeners, many of our listeners will know that you actually spent part of your formative years in Kansas. You graduated mm -hmm. from Mays High School. So what was it about this location that felt like the right setting in which to tell the story of Jack's childhood? For example, there's a memorable passage in the book about Jack believing that there's something unphotographable about the Flint Hills. Could that be a metaphor for Jack's own sense of self? Uh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, you, you hit on that perfectly. Uh, yeah, the Flint Hills are a very special landscape for me. I went to high school in Wichita, and then I went to college at Iowa. And of course, driving back and forth between the two, I would go through the Flint Hills every time. And I just, I, I loved when I would get there, and I would kind of take my time and sometimes get off the road and drive through the, the small highways. And it's just such a beautiful, beautiful, singular landscape. And um, you know, I started writing this book during a pandemic lockdown, and I was feeling very claustrophobic. You know, I wasn't leaving the house much. And so part of it was just uh, if I couldn't have vistas in my actual life, at least I could have them in my book, you know. And so the the Flint Hills was the, the it's the landscape I associate most with openness and freedom. And so I wanted I wanted to go there in my imagination. And so I, I did. And that's kind of why it's in the book. But then as it turned out, it, it worked really really well symbolically and thematically with all these other things going on in the book the story that especially early pioneers told about the flint hills was that it was a desert you know the great american desert is what they called it and they were so used to seeing trees that that if they saw a landscape without trees they thought well something must be wrong here you know they didn't understand the fabulous amount of life and diversity that that ecosystem has they just thought it was empty and i feel like that attitude from east coast people that the plains are empty is sort of persisted ever since you know and so i felt like jack would have a bit of a chip on his shoulder about that as do i so yeah so it, it seemed just to make sense uh and then uh, i remember this one night 
when I was in high school, I worked at the Palace movie theater. I don't know if the Palace still exists in Wichita, but there was a second run movie theater. And I remember one night like getting off work and it was well after midnight and I was kind of driving out uh, and I noticed this orange glow on the horizon and I just followed it and I saw my first prairie burn. Mm. You know, ranchers were burning at night because probably the wind conditions were correct and they, they couldn't do it the following day or, or something, I assume now. But I remember just stopping on the road and watching these ribbons of fire snake across the grass and I just thought it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen and that image has just stayed with me for 20 25 years and then I decided to use it again in this book can you describe your decision to include examples of Jack's photography in the book why was it important for those visuals to be a part of the story yeah he his his particular art form is called the photochemogram it's a process whereby you take photographic paper, unexposed photographic paper, and put it in a water bath and then add the various chemicals of the photographic process, developer and and stopping chemicals and, and so forth, in such a way that the chemicals react with the silver bromide in the paper and create images. These can be really spectacularly beautiful. Um, and I thought it was really, it would be really interesting for Jack's art to be just incredibly abstract. Um, again, this is a book about the stories that we we put on things. And Jack is trying to resist all stories about his art. He's, he insists that it is <clears throat> purely abstract, purely figurative, just n- not representational at all. And then, of course, we learn later in the book that that's not true, but I won't give that away right now. I thought it was a perfect way to capture other themes in the book. But I, you know, in order to really describe it well, I decided I needed to do it myself. And so I got a bunch of, you know, expired photo paper off of eBay and I got the requisite chemicals and I, I created this little darkroom lab in my garage and started doing it. And I really loved them. I thought they were really cool. And eventually uh, I was like, these need to go in the book, if only because I just, you know, just to kind of show off some of the work I'd done. <laughs> so the chemograms that you see in the book are real chemograms that I made in my garage. I want to give Elizabeth a chance here. So the novel gives us an honest and messy depiction of Elizabeth's experience of motherhood. In fact, relationships between parents and their children are an important through line of the story. Talk to me about the decision to delve into the family dynamics of these characters and what that brought to the story. Yeah, I I, I had this experience where basically all of my closest friends had kids at the same time. I'm not sure if they were planning that, but that's just how it all happened. You know, the people I'm most close with in the world all became parents at roughly the same time. And so I was sort of on the outside watching this all happen and commiserating with them and kind of witnessing what it was like for them. And one of the things that I observed, and and especially in my friends who are mothers, was just how much they felt they were failing when from the outside it felt like they were beyond succeeding you know it seemed like they were doing a fabulous job in a very difficult situation and they would say things like uh you know at the end of the day you know they would remember the one time when maybe their temper was a little short the one time that they thought well maybe that was the thing that my kid is going to remember about me forever and this imperative to be perfect at all times throughout the day. And this was, you know, sort of amplified by the the information epidemic that's out there that's just completely scary for new parents about, you know, exactly what you need to do to be a good parent. And I just felt for them. I, I, I thought they were 
they're, you know, moms and dads were giving themselves incredibly high standards and then consistently failing to live up to them. And it, it just seemed very, very hard. And and so I, it worked its way into the novel because I know I wanted to talk about it. I wanted to talk about how even, you know, <laughs> the people who I think are some of the best parents think they're some of the worst. I found it kind of remarkable. Yeah. So that's how it got in there. You did a lot of research for this novel, and I enjoyed seeing a bibliography included in the book. So what was your research process like? Were there any sources you really loved but couldn't find a place for in the story? And how much of the story did you think was shaped by what you found during your research? Quite a lot. I mean, I, I goodness, I, I there's a section in the book that's basically told from the point of view of social media algorithms. And, uh, and I... I, I read so much on that section uh, to try to get it right. Um, uh, you know, like the Facebook algorithm, for example, is not public knowledge and Facebook is very quiet about that. But uh, they have patented all of their algorithms and those patent applications are public. So I must have read hundreds of pages of Facebook patent applications, which is very dry material. Uh, but it did give me a, a wealth of information from which to 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 tell a story. Similarly, you know, um, Elizabeth is a, a psychologist who specializes in the placebo effect. And so naturally, I read everything I could find about the placebo effect and mostly just kind of getting on Google Scholar and you know, you know, reading through um, uh, studies and then finding interesting citations and reading those studies. It was a very kind of self-directed education, but I found it so interesting, um, and it, and it felt like I like necessary for me to really create the character of Elizabeth and make her feel true. And also, I just like it. Like honestly, I just I like reading new things. I like learning new things. I love doing research. I think the world gives you so much great material if you just look hard for it, you know. And so I don't know. I made a deal with myself a long time ago before my first book. You know that writing is a very insecure profession. You know, you never know if anybody's ever going to read any anything you've written. And so it might as well be fun along the way. If you're going to do this, you might as well enjoy it. And one of the things I really really enjoy is is reading new things, learning interesting things, going down rabbit holes. So. So, you know, so I just gave myself permission to do that. We've talked about a lot. Is there anything you want to talk about that I haven't asked? Uh, no, no, I don't think so. This has been great. Yeah. That very first section, I'm still just clutching my chest. I mean, that was such a perfect <laughs> way to just suck us in. That, that tension you. of are they ever going to meet and turn off, <laughs> just turn on the light already. You're looking at each other and <laughs> loved it. I wanted to I wanted to create this like opening fanfare. It was like 30 pages of just true romance. And uh and, and in order to like create the the uh the paradise that's lost, the Eden that they need to get back to later, you know. Uh and uh, yeah, that was a, that was a real joy to to write. Well, the book is Wellness. Nathan Hill, thank you so much for joining us again. No, oh, thank you. It was a pleasure. That was Nathan Hill, author of the book, Wellness, which was published by Knopf. Margie Nelia was produced at KMUW Wichita and is part of the NPR Podcast Network. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editors are Luann Stevens and Haley Krausen. Our producers are Haley Krausen and Katie Lanning, and our marketing coordinator is Carly Cooper. This is Margie Nelia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay. <laughs>